Global Connections Television is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. We invite you to go to the website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous shows. If you are involved with a PBS or community access television station or an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup or perhaps a podcast or just a computer and would like to share the programs, please feel free to do so. Global Connections is provided at no cost to help people in the U.S. and worldwide better understand how international issues impact our lives. Welcome to today's Global Connections program. I'm Bill Miller. Today, we're going to be talking about how to expand the middle class and reduce income inequality. My guest is an expert on this topic. And by the way, he has a new book that applies to it very nicely. Mr. Tom Hartman is an American radio personality, author, former psychotherapist, businessman, and progressive political commentator. His most recent book is The Hidden History of Neoliberalism, How Reaganism Gutted America and How to Restore Its Greatness. Tom Hartman, welcome to today's Global Connections program. Thank you, Bill. It's great to be here with you. Thanks I for the invitation. Thank you. I appreciate you being with me today. Let's just, Tom, jump right into your book. What is the theme of your book and what's the main message? Well, you know, a lot of people, when they look back on the Reagan revolution, uh, you know, assume that what Reagan was doing was just throwing stuff against the wall to see what would stick. You know, let's try a little free trade. Uh, let's you know, move move businesses overseas, cut taxes on rich people, um, you know, deregulate. Let's try to destroy the Environmental Protection Agency, um, stuff like that. But actually, he was following a script. And it was a script that was developed in the 1940s in Switzerland by a group of economists most of them European. Uh, there was one famous American, Milton Friedman, among them. And they called that script neoliberalism. Liberalism in Europe means the kind of opposite of what it means here. It means, um, you know, without government restraint. It means the so-called free market, what we'd call it libertarianism. And this was the new liberalism, the, the even more extreme, even more radical, that government should basically do nothing. There should be no social safety net programs. There should be no support for domestic industries. Um, there should be, you know, no Social Security, no Medicare, no Medicaid, no unemployment insurance. I mean, just, you know, on and on and on. Right. The only job that government should have is to run the army and the police and the courts. And, uh, you know, they became real evangelists for this. And, and it came to the United States in 1981 with the beginning of the Reagan presidency. Reagan adopted neoliberalism as a policy for the United States. And um, and it was followed by, you know, both Clinton and Obama and, of course, George W. Bush and, and uh, Donald Trump all continued this neoliberal path, um, which ended up moving about five trillion, excuse me, 50 trillion dollars of wealth out of the pockets and homes of the American middle class and into the pockets and money bins of the top one percent um, saw us move uh, 15 million plus jobs, 60,000 factories out of the United States into China, Vietnam, and Mexico. Um, you know, basically saw us, we were 65% of Americans were middle class with a single income in 1980 when Reagan came into office. Now it's 45% of Americans in the middle class and it requires 1.7 incomes to maintain middle class status without debt. So, you know, the, the consequences have been dramatic and so I wrote the book to just, you know, put it all in one place so that people could identify it and see what this script was. Do you 
feel that this, well, this neoliberalism, this approach has been what's really gutted the middle class to a large degree, has reduced or has created this grand canyon, canyon of income inequality between the haves and the have nots, has really produced a more dangerous society? It has. The average American white male worker realizes that they've been screwed. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I grew up in a in a, uh, a brand new suburb. It was built in 1956. That's when my dad bought that house uh, for, for $15,000 in South Lansing. It's kind of lower middle class, working class. Pretty much everybody in the neighborhood, their, their dads worked at Fisher Body or General Motors. And just on my block, there were three families that had a summer home up in Northern Michigan on a union salary working, you know, on the, in the Oldsmobile assembly line. Um, uh, when my dad died in 2006, we put the house up for sale. It was worth about $85,000, $90,000 to give you a sense of, you know, that, that kind of a neighborhood. Nobody in that neighborhood has a summer home any longer. I mean, you know, the, that, that middle class is just gone. And uh, so, and, and I think the important thing to point out is that this was a, a great example of the road to hell being paved with good intentions. These economists got together in Europe in the 40s, not to figure out how to screw the middle class or make the rich richer. They got together to try and figure out how to harden Western democracies so that never again would a country flip either communists like Russia had done or fascists like Italy, Germany, and, and Spain had done. And uh, being economists, they thought they had all the answers, and this was their answer, neoliberalism. Uh, you know, we've tried it now for 41 years. Uh, the experiment has largely failed. Uh, and the countries that chose not to do it, like, you know, Russia chose neoliberalism, and thus, you know, it's an oligarchic mess. China explicitly, uh, there was a big sales effort, sales pitch. I was in China, lived in China in, in late 1986. And there was a big effort to convince the Chinese government to go with neoliberalism. They rejected it. It was a two-year debate. They rejected it in 1989, I guess it was, and instead adopted Alexander Hamilton's American plan, which had been our policy, our manufacturing policy from 1793 up until 1981. And that's why China is now the, you know, one of the richest, the second richest country in the world, has the fastest growing GDP in the world. Um, and and we're falling way behind because we tried this, uh, what ultimately in retrospect turned out to be a terrible experiment. One of the major challenges of this neoliberalism has been this race to the bottom. Well, you mentioned exporting jobs overseas, moving factories out of the United States, and also this race to the bottom on where to get the cheapest labor at rock bottom prices at all times. What What can be done? What suggestions do you have in your book to help overcome these problems? Well, I wrap the book up with, you know, a number of uh, specific policy suggestions, but the main one is that we again adopt Alexander Hamilton's 11 point plan for American manufacturers. In 1791, when uh, George Washington was elected president, uh, or excuse me, in 1789, when George Washington was elected president, um, he came into office and he, he wanted to uh, be sworn in in an American suit of clothing. At that time, the British had a policy, which by the way, they still had in the 1950s. I mean, this is why uh, they, they had a policy that the countries that they controlled could not engage in manufacturing. And this is why Mahatma Gandhi's logo was the spinning wheel, because it was illegal to actually make cloth in India while the British controlled India. 
And, and so he defied that law. Well, that was the law here in the United States in the 1770s and had been for 150 years that it was illegal to make fine clothing here. You, had to, you could pick cotton here. You could grow hemp here. You could send the fabric over to, to the United Kingdom to be made into cloth. And then the cloth was made into, into fine fabrics and then they were shipped back to the United States. So Washington wanted to be inaugurated in, fine, in, in, in American clothing. And there was one guy who had been uh, underground illegally manufacturing fine men's clothing. His name is Daniel Hinsdale. He lived in Connecticut. And so uh, Washington sent General Knox to Hinsdale with his measurements and said, you know, get me a suit. And Washington, sure enough, was sworn in wearing a basic brown American suit. He wore British black for that famous painting that Dolly Madison saved. But um, and so after he was sworn into office, he turned to his secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton, and said, we need to turn America into a great industrial power like like England is, like the United Kingdom is. How do we do it? And Hamilton spent three years working on this and in 1791 brought to Congress his 11 point plan. It was called uh, Alexander Hamilton's plan for American manufacturers. And um, basically what he suggested was that uh, anything manufactured in the United States should be available for export, but any product similar to it that's manufactured anywhere else in the world, if somebody wants to bring it into the United States, there will be an import tax on that, a tariff, so that American made goods will always be competitive in fact, we'll always beat the competition of foreign-made goods. Um, so, and we're also going to encourage the export of American-made goods um, with subsidies. We would also identify specific industries that were vital to the national security interests of the United States: uh, weapons manufacturing, clothing manufacturing, railroads, car, you know, uh, train cars. Um, I mean, this was very much the early ages of, of even that kind of thing. In fact, this was before railroads in a big way, but, um, you know, uh, wagon train, <laughs> you know, wagon wheels, uh, <laughs> yeah. whatever it may be. He had a long, long list of things that he wanted the government to subsidize. And we did. We subsidized all these manufacturers. We, we uh, gave what he called pecuniary benefits, bonuses to them. Uh, we built an, inter an, an interstate road system. Uh, to facilitate uh, manufacturing. We built a banking system to, uh, to provide for manufacturing. And that made America, and by the way, he, he didn't come up with this from scratch. He was basically copying what was called the Tudor plan that Henry VII had come up with in the 1500s. And Henry VII had stolen it from the Spanish, or from the Dutch trading companies in the 1400s. Um, and, uh, but, but in any case, that was what made America wealthy. And that income from those tariffs, from those uh, tariffs on imported goods, produced 100% of the revenue that supported the federal government of the United States from the time of the American Revolution, or the time of uh, the Washington administration, rather, up until the Civil War, 50% of the total federal budget from the Civil War to World War I, and fully one-third of the federal budget from World War I to World War II. After World War II, we started slowly reducing tariffs. And then, of course, Reagan came in and just killed our tariffs. We still have 24,000 items over at the Department of Commerce's websites that individual categories, you know, rolled steel, flat steel, bar steel, things like that, that have tariffs attached to them. But the average tariff now is, you know, under 1% rather than the average, um, you know, at, uh, and by, in the 1930s and for 200 years prior to that, around 30%. So, you know, China did that. Europe has done that. 
Uh, we didn't do that. We went with a liberal, neoliberal strategy starting in 1980. Reagan, of course, uh, negotiated the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, GATT, which created the World Trade Organization, which China was admitted to in 2001 under the Bush administration. And uh, the Reagan-Bush administration, uh, most of it happened during the Bush administration, negotiated NAFTA, which, uh, you know, got a further gutted our, our middle class. Well, Tom, we're going to come back in just a moment and talk about tariffs and shipping jobs overseas. Well, you're watching Global Connections Television, which is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guest. We'd invite our viewers to go to our website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous programs. Also, if you're involved with the PBS or Community Access Television Station, or perhaps an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup, or you have a podcast, or you just have a computer. You like our shows, you would like to share them, please feel free to do so. Global Connections Television is provided at no cost as a public service to help us better understand international issues and how they impact our lives. Today, we're talking with Mr. Tom Hartman about his recent book that's uh, just really it's riveting. It's titled The Hidden History of Neoliberalism, How Reaganism Gutted America and How to Restore Its Greatness. Tom, you were talking a moment ago about tariffs and also exporting our jobs overseas. One of the arguments that uh, the folks, neoliberals, the people who are moving corporations overseas use is that it's cheaper for American consumers to have these jobs made overseas. It also helps developing countries to develop their own industries. How, how do you counter that? How do we deal with that? How can we help people overseas and still keep good paying jobs in the United States and keep prices to where Americans can afford them? Well, first, uh, to, to reverse the order of your questions, if we want to help uh, developing countries overseas to develop their own internal industry, we need to teach them Alexander Hamilton's plan. <laughs> <laughs> it's very straightforward. Uh, every, right there. <laughs> yeah, every country should be able to stand on their own two feet. Uh, telling a developing country that the solution to their, all their problems is to be dependent upon the American consumer is crazy. Um, you know, we, we go through recessions, we go through depressions, we're not a reliable, uh, you know, uh, anything, uh, you know, over the long term. It's one of the reasons that uh, uh, President Xi of China has uh, identified 2025 as the year in which China is going to be entirely self-sufficient with regard to the United States. Um, you know, he, like I said, he's following the Hamilton plan. Um, and, 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 you know, that's one of the milestones in that plan. Um, the first part of your question, I'm sorry, remind oh, me. Oh, it had, had to do with tariffs and oh. propping up prices, making things more expensive. Right, yeah, how do, how do we, how do you respond to people saying, well, you, you know, look in Walmart, you know, 99% of the stuff in there was made in China and it's cheap, isn't that wonderful? Well, you know, I'm an old man, Bill. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> well, I was born in 1951, and I remember when, you know, everything was made in the United States. I remember the 70s growing, you know, growing up in Michigan, where if you had a foreign car, you, you were guaranteed that somebody was going to scrape the key, you know, the paint off the side of it with a key. Um, everything was made in America. And yeah, things might have been a little more expensive. Maybe we paid a little more for, for, our, for our blue jeans and for our, our T-shirts and and uh, things like that. But we also made a hell of a lot more money. You know, we had a better income. 
So, uh, you know, really all this uh, so-called global free trade is, is, it's not really free trade, it's managed trade, first of all. It's just managed by big corporations for their interests rather than our interests, number one. And, and secondly, it's really just the arbitrage of labor. It's really, I mean, the, the whole goal of it is not to, you know, seamlessly integrate the international economy. There are ways to do that in, in certain categories of goods and services. Energy is probably at the top of that list. But um, that's not what global free trade really is all about. It's really just about uh, American corporations being allowed to find the cheapest labor in the world. Jack Welch, the former CEO of General Electric, famously said, you know, if I could do it, I'd put my factories on a barge and, uh, and I'd move it from country to country. As labor starts getting expensive, I'd move to the next country. And, you know, that's the philosophy of the people who are promoting so-called free trade. And a large part of the problem, according to a large number of the people who view this problem and analyze it, is the United States Congress. What role does it play in helping to perpetuate, really, many of these myths about this free trade? And what is the state of Congress today and state of, really, the media and public advertising and on political campaigns now that Citizens United has just opened the doors to all types of dark money, probably much of it illegal, who knows? So what, what, what role do they play in this? Well, I think in, in, in 1981, when Reagan uh, changed American uh, economic policy, both our domestic and our international trade policies from classic Adam Smith, John Maynard Keynes kind of uh, you know, uh, economic understanding um, to, uh, to neoliberalism. I think at that point in time, I'm, I'm willing to cut them a lot of slack and say, you know, this really hadn't been tried outside of this terrible experiment in Chile that, that you know, with uh, General Pinochet. Um, and, and, and Milton Friedman had been selling this in the United States since the 1950s. He had a regular column in the newspapers. He was syndicated by one of the big syndication companies. He wrote for magazines. He was on TV all the time. He was he was a, a, a gadfly. He was all over the place. He was sort of that generation's, um, you know, uh, Stephen Moore or, uh, you know, one of these guys, you know, the, the 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 no tax guys, you know, Grover Norquist type types. And he had convinced a lot of people that this was the this was the solution. This was going to fix things. And Maggie Thatcher had imposed neoliberalism on the United Kingdom a year before Reagan came into office, or two years before Reagan came into office in '79. And uh, it didn't seem to be destroying England, although it had destroyed the coal miners union. And uh, so, but, but I think within, within a decade or so, certainly by the time Ross Perot got into the 1992 election and just said it out loud, you know, this is, this is just gonna strip us of our manufacturing jobs. Pretty much everybody had figured it out. Um, but the problem was that in 1978, uh, Lewis Powell, who Richard Nixon put on the Supreme Court in 72, uh, authored a decision of uh, First National Bank of Boston versus Frank Bellotti, who was the attorney general for Massachusetts at the time, in which he said that corporations are persons, corporations have free speech rights under the First Amendment because they're persons, and that money is speech. Now, we had never said that money was speech ever in the history of America, um, that money, you know, giving money to politicians was something protected under the First Amendment. Talking to politicians was certainly protected. Petitioning them, you know, voting for them, campaigning for them, but not giving them money. And uh, when the Supreme Court did this, it allowed the, the Reagan campaign 
to just float into the White House in 1980 on a, on a tsunami of fossil fuel money um, because Jimmy Carter had basically declared war on the fossil fuel industry in 79, you know, putting his solar panels on the roof of the White House. He had two major pieces of legislation that were pa the past Congress. One created a solar bank. He wanted 20% of America's electricity to be produced by solar power by the year 2000. And we were on course to do that. And so Reagan's mandate from the oil companies that helped him get into office was to undo that. And now, you know, and for, for a couple of decades, they kind of, you know, the big money interests kind of kept their heads down and, you know, were kind of quietly working around the edges. But now it's just open bribery of Congress. Jimmy Carter on my show a couple of years ago said America is now an oligarchy, you know, with bribery being the principal uh, vehicle of uh, uh, political action. And, and, and that's where we're at. And it's a tragedy. And, and, you know, we need to do something about it. Um, and, and in fact, we tried the For the People Act that passed the House of Representatives and was blocked in the Senate by all the Republicans, plus Manchin and Cinema on the Democratic side, would have at least mandated transparency in dark money, which is a small start. Um, but, you know, we just learned from the Washington Post recently that in the uh, 2002, uh, excuse me, the 2022 um, midterm elections, that, uh, you know, a couple of weeks before the election, we learned that the uh, dark money billionaires had put over a billion dollars just into the Senate races. And, you know, so people, I mean, advertising works. People are getting carpet bound with advertising. And the reason is because advertising works. There's a reason why people eat, uh, you know, Kellogg cereals and, and use uh, Procter & Gamble products because they advertise like crazy and advertising works. And so you can convince anybody of anything if you advertise enough, if you're steady enough and you pour enough money into it. And so now our political system is really in a crisis. I mean, you know, the American middle class is in a crisis. People are, are angry, They're, they wanna fight back. Donald Trump captured the mood of this in 2016 when he campaigned on bringing back our factories, ending the offshoring of American industry. He said he was going to give everybody in America better health care than the Affordable Care Act at a lower cost. He said that he was going to support the, the expansion of labor unions across the country. He said he was going to raise taxes on rich people so much that his friends would refuse to talk to him. All of those things, it turns out, were lies. But um, he got a lot of votes because of that, particularly in the Midwest, because people knew that this system is not working. And now pretty much, you know, the people who are saying that are President Biden. He's talking like this. Um, and the progressives on the Democratic Party. And so I'm hoping that they can capture this populist moment and that, you know, Republicans will figure out that this is a failed experiment. I, you know, I'd love to see rational Republicans, you know, supporting this sort of thing the way that Dwight Eisenhower did, for example, when he was president. It is getting worse day by day. And there, there are so many other topics we could talk about, Tom, but we're just about out of time. But you raise an interesting point that, that since you're in the media, I'm in the media, how do you feel the media have covered these events, how they covered the climate crisis, how the January 6th attempt to really to develop a coup d'etat to overthrow a free election in the United States? What role do you see for the media and how, what grade would you give a lot of the media people up to this point? I started working in the media in 1966 or 67. I was 16 years old and I got a weekend job as a DJ uh, playing country Western music in Lansing, Michigan, and ended up staying, you know, I, I worked in several different stations for a few years and then went back to WITL and did news for seven years there. And 
Back then, there were seven stations in Lansing, and every one was owned by a local family or a group of families. The three guys who started Whittle, the station I was at, was a, an engineer, a sales guy, and an old radio guy. Now, there's not a single station in Lansing that's owned by a local group. You know, everything, every, you know, the media in America, and this is in large part because of the uh, Telecommunications Act of 1996, we used to have rules that limited ownership of media properties and uh, limited uh, cross ownership. So if you owned a TV station, you couldn't also own a radio station. Or if you owned a radio station and a TV station, you couldn't own a newspaper in the same markets. All that is gone now. And, and, and you know, we've got uh, probably 80, 90% of all the media in the United States. You've got magazines that represent over 10,000 different titles uh, in the hands of fewer than 12 companies now. You've got you know, uh, uh, basically three networks that are not even owned as networks any longer. They're, they're parts of much, much larger corporations. So the, the goal of the media back then, and then of course you also had the Fairness Doctrine that required public, you know, programming in the public interest, which broadly meant giving real news and both sides of the story. And that was ended by Reagan in 87. So now we've got a media that is purely industry. It's purely a business. Its only goal is to make money. And, and you get these occasional moments of clarity about it, you know, like when uh, the CEO of uh, CBS, Len, Les Moonves, was on that uh, call with his, with his investors in 2016, um, you know, during the election. And he said, uh, Donald Trump is terrible for America, but he's sure making a hell of a lot of money for CBS. Keep it up, Donald. And, uh, you know, it's like if it bleeds, it leads now in the media. They, it, it, truth is not the highest value. Accuracy is not the highest value. You know, how do we get the most eyeballs? That's the highest value. And it's a real tragedy. Well, Tom, there's so many other issues we could talk about. I really want to get into climate change, but we just don't have the time. In the last 30 seconds, what recommendation or suggestion or helpful hint would you have for the folks who are listening to this program to help us? reduce that income inequality gap to help us combat climate change, help us develop a Congress that uh, some people say is the worst Congress money can buy and just all across the board. We all need to be involved in politics. We can't afford to just sit back and say somebody else is going to do it. Um, you know, get involved with your local Democratic or Republican Party, show up. There's a lot of great uh, groups out there you know, bottom line tag, you're it. It's up to us. <laughs> it certainly is. If we don't do it, nobody else will. That's for sure. Well, Tom Hartman, I want to thank you so very much for a very interesting and a very informative program. Thank you, Bill, for having me on your program. It's been a pleasure and an honor. Thank you, sir. I'm Bill Miller. Thank you for joining us today on Global Connections Television.